Well, you know, what you focus on is such an important part uh, of your life. In fact, what you focus on in life will determine where you end up in life. You know that. What you, what you fix your gaze upon, what you uh, set your mind to, what you wrap your heart up in will set the course before you. That's why focus is so vitally important because it determines our direction. It's also why uh, diversion is one of the oldest military tactics in the world because if the enemy can get us to uh, focus on something other than our intended target, then he can change our course. Right? Through diversion, the enemy can actually determine our direction for us and render our plans utterly useless. And of course, as Christians, we have a very real enemy. It's, it's not the culture around us, as some would have us believe. It's not the government or political powers or their policies that are sometimes forced upon us. It's not those who disagree with us. It's not those who don't believe in God. It's not even those who worship other gods. No, our enemy is waging a spiritual war against our souls. The Apostle Paul said we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6.12. And yet in Colossians 2.15, which we read last week, he also said that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So we have an enemy, yes, but do you understand he's already been defeated? He's been disarmed against us, which means the only tactic he has left to try and see us defeated is for us to defeat ourselves as he draws our attention, our focus away from Jesus Christ. Again, the Apostle Paul said, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, 2 Corinthians 11.3. You see, the, the only power our enemy has against us is the power that we give him. It's the power we give him when we take our focus off of that which truly matters. It's, it's the power of diversion that he wields against us to try and change our course, to render our plans useless because we've stopped focusing on Christ and his plan for our lives and instead focus on our own plans because of the power of suggestion. It's really nothing more than a diversion from what actually matters. And as a result... You end up with a church from one end of this country to the other full of people who are living out their entire lives purely devoted to diversions instead of being purely devoted to Christ. All right? What do you spend the bulk of uh, your time and energy and passion and money and focus on? Right? Is it the pursuits of Christ or the pursuits of this world? What do you spend most of your time thinking about and dreaming about and planning for? Are they plans to serve Christ or plans to serve yourself? And listen, 
I understand being politically active. I understand maintaining uh, an awareness of what is happening in our government. I, I understand being concerned about the growth and spread of other religions and religious groups in our country. But listen, when you've become wholly devoted to fighting social and political and religious movements, you're actually devoting yourself to nothing more than diversions because your focus is on something as noble as it may seem. Your focus is on something other than Jesus Christ. Do you understand? That is exactly what our enemy wants us to do. He wants nothing more than for us to whittle away our days on this earth, being more passionate about every good cause that comes our way than we are about Jesus Christ himself. Diversions. Taking our focus off of Christ. It's the only trick our enemy has left up his sleeve, and yet we allow him to use it against us with tremendous prejudice. And of course, as prevalent as that is in the church today, it's really nothing new. As we'll see in our story this morning, as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Colossae as a, a false religion and its followers had worked their way into the church and were beginning to uh, influence the followers of Christ to the point that it was starting to tear at the fabric of the church, dividing the people and really threatening its very survival. And so one of the local pastors, a man named Epaphrodite, who had planted the church there, uh, he travels to Rome to see the great Apostle Paul who was being held in the Mamertine prison. It was uh, known as the Tullianum Dungeon at the time, a particularly harsh place to be incarcerated. And Epaphras travels there to meet with uh, Paul to ask for help in dealing with this problem in the church that was reaching critical mass. And out of that meeting comes this letter to the Colossians. And what is so compelling about the letter is that even though Paul uh, is addressing, at least at times, the false teachers and their teaching at points along the way, his real focus never veers away from Jesus Christ as the answer to the problem. And he never allows his focus to be diverted in the conversation away from Christ. In fact, he begins the letter by talking about hope, the hope that the Colossians have in Christ for almost all of the first chapter before ever addressing the specific issues that are facing the church. And then at the end of the first chapter and the beginning of the next, he reminds them why they were put here on this earth to begin with, which he says is all about representing Christ and gaining knowledge and wisdom of Christ. And then through the rest of the second chapter, he talks about the importance of being rooted in Christ, which we talked about last week. And so uh, Paul's absolute focus throughout the letter, like a laser beam up to this point, has been on Jesus Christ rather than on the problems in the church that Epaphras traveled all the way to Rome to see Paul about in the first place. And then finally, as we'll see uh, today and then again next week, in the last two chapters of the letter, Paul focuses on the fact that as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we've been raised with Christ. What, what that actually means for his followers then and today when we're facing the very worst difficulties of our own lives. And I'll just give you a hint. It has to do with keeping our focus on Christ no matter how plentiful or powerful the diversions around us may be at any given time. So let's pick up the story where we left off last week and we'll see if we can find out how uh, being raised with Christ 
should really affect our lives every day. We'll start at Colossians chapter 3 and read the first four verses. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you've died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So in the, the last chapter, Paul, uh, referring to our new life in Christ, he says that we've been uh, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And then he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Colossians 2, 12 and 13. So Paul explains how we were once dead in our sin, but we've now been raised to new life in Christ. And so he's picking up on that theme again here in chapter 3 when he says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Listen, this is a profoundly important point that Paul is making about what our lives as followers of Christ should be focused on because, first of all, when Paul says, seek the things that are above where Christ is, he's saying we should predominantly be focused on where Christ is with the Father rather than on what Christ is doing with us which of course is compelling in and of itself and we'll come back to that and then he he borrows from uh, Psalm 110.1 when he references Christ being seated at the right hand of God which is of utmost importance because without that reference one could try to make the claim that Jesus Christ is nothing more than some kind of uh, benevolent spirit among many right roaming around the world doing good deeds for people but if he is in fact seated at the right hand of God, then he can only be the one and only true Son of God. So it speaks directly to the true identity of Jesus Christ. And then again, when he says, set your minds on things that are above, that phrase, set your minds, is the ancient Greek word phreneo, which is one of Paul's favorites, by the way. Uh, of the 26 times it's used in the New Testament, 23 of those occurrences uh, come by way of Paul's hand. And what's interesting about the word is, rather than simply referring to uh, an intellectual ascent or the mental process of simply thinking about something, it actually refers to a fundamental orientation of the will. So what Paul's saying is, your entire life, your thoughts, your desires, your ambitions, your plans, your passions, your outlook, your, your entire perspective on this life, your will, the very core of what drives you as a human being should be focused squarely on where Christ is and on who Christ is. In other words, if you've been raised with Christ, then focus on Christ himself. Not so much on what he's doing. And, and listen, of course, it's not because uh, what he's doing is not important, right? We know that what Jesus Christ is doing is of the greatest importance. But listen, if we uh, only focus on the works of Christ rather than on the person of Christ, then we're very easily distracted 
diverted, in fact, from our one true purpose, which is to glorify Jesus Christ himself, not simply his works. Okay, it's, it's rather common today to find professing believers who will readily champion their causes, the good works that they're doing and those of their churches without scarcely even mentioning the name of Jesus Christ. We're proud to announce to the world that we fight sex trafficking and poverty and world hunger and injustice and inequities of all kinds, but we dare not shove Jesus down people's throats. I'm telling you, we're missing the forest for the trees because we've become more focused on the works of Christ than we are on the person of Christ. And our enemy loves it. Yes, fight for justice. Yes, fight for the poor. Yes, fight for the hurting. But how dare you fight for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? How arrogant. This is one of the most successful diversions of the enemy within the American church today. And, and look, you, if you know me, you know. We're all about feeding the hungry here. Helping those who are broken, caring for those who cannot care for themselves, and righting the endless wrongs in this world. But if our primary focus isn't on Jesus Christ himself, then to what end are we leading people? What good does it do to fill someone's stomach if their soul remains empty? What justice is served if someone experiences freedom in this life but is enslaved for all eternity after this life? What great aim is achieved by offering someone a helping hand if we're too afraid to offer them Jesus? We've become so enamored with sharing the good works of Christ that we've stopped sharing Jesus Christ himself. It's precisely why Paul says you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, by the way, when he appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. If that's true, if we have died spiritually and been raised with Christ so that Christ himself now is our very life, then Christ himself must become our focus. Right? Without question, we need to... We need to be doing for people exactly what Jesus Christ did for people when he walked this earth. But don't ever forget the greatest offering that he ever made to humanity was himself. Let's keep reading verses 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So again, verse 3, Paul says, you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And based on that, 
the fact that as Christians we've died spiritually and have now been raised with Christ with a new spirit and a new life in him. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he begins to to list some of the most common diversions the enemy uses in our lives to turn our gaze, our focus off of Christ and put it right back on ourselves, right? It's how false teaching, by the way, gets started to begin with, all right? Every other religion focuses on what we must do for God in order to earn his favor. Christianity focuses on Jesus Christ and what he's already done for us. You see the difference? Christianity puts the focus on Christ while other religions puts the focus on ourselves. It's nothing more than a diversion of the enemy to keep our eyes and our hearts off of Jesus Christ because we're far more susceptible to accepting false teaching and false religion when we're more focused on ourselves than we are on Jesus. And of course Paul knows that. So he says if you indeed have been raised with Christ then don't focus on yourself. Die to yourself. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he starts off with sexual immorality, which is the ancient Greek word pornia, which refers to really any and all sexual activity outside of marriage. Okay? In fact, uh, five of the diversions that Paul lists here have to do with sexual purity, which certainly emphasizes the need for us to submit that area of our lives under the lordship of Christ. And then Paul explains that along with the other items on the list... Uh, these diversions are all forms of idolatry, which happens anytime our thoughts are led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. We focus on ourselves instead of on him. That's what happened to Adam and Eve, right? And so Paul echoes Jesus himself when he says, look, the remedy to focusing on ourselves is to die to ourselves. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9, 23. The cross, of course, being the ultimate instrument of death. Jesus was saying, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to die to yourself every single day. And yet in the very next verse, he goes on to say, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In other words, look, you're not just dying to yourself here. You're also raised with Christ into a whole new life. The problem for many of us is we want the new life without having to die to the old one. Author Marianne Williamson, she's not a Christian by the way, but she once offered this insight which I think is valuable into the process of what so many Christians experience when they encounter God. She said, when you ask God into your life, you think he's going to come into your house and look around and see that you just need a little cleaning. And so you go along for about the first six months thinking how nice life is now that God is there. And then you look out the window one day and see that there's a wrecking ball outside. It turns out that God actually thinks your whole foundation is shot and you're going to have to start over from scratch. Now, the particulars of that statement may not be exactly biblically accurate to the letter, but the spirit of that statement is so true for so many followers of Christ. We want the new life that is available to us in Him without giving up the old life. We don't want to have to give up all of the, the diversions in our lives that we enjoy, even if they take our focus off of Christ. And yet, it goes so far beyond just new behavior 
Right? We find all throughout the New Testament that once we are made new in Christ, yes, our behavior should definitely change. But it's not just about behavioral modification. It's about total transformation. It's about a whole new identity. We're no longer the people that we used to be. Right? Once you've been raised with Christ, Paul says you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. It's probably good Paul was in prison when he wrote this. Otherwise, someone would have killed him. And I'm not sure, honestly, we can fully get our minds around what Paul was saying here because I'm not sure we have a context today that compares to the one he was writing this in. But when Paul says there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all, he's talking about the loss of all identity outside of Jesus Christ. And the way he says it couldn't be any more extreme, right? It's one thing to say there's no Greek or Jew, slave or free. That, that in and of itself would have been intensely provocative for him to say in a first century context to a group of religious Jews and Gentiles. But then Paul throws the Scythians in the mix just for fun. Okay, the Scythians were a people group located on the northern uh, coast of the Black Sea. And to the Greeks, the Scythians were violent, uneducated, uncivilized. They were altogether inferior people as far as the Greeks were concerned. They, they in fact, considered them to be lower than the low, right? And the Jews thought no better of them. In the third and uh, fourth books of the Maccabees, somewhere around the uh, uh, first century B.C., the beginning of the first century A.D., the Scythians were described as the most cruel of warriors who tore off the scalps of their prisoners with their fingernails. It also says they would mix wine with their own blood before battle and then dip their weapons in it before drinking it. And according to uh, the Greek historian Herodotus, all the way back in the uh, 5th century BC, the Scythian warriors would drink the blood of the first man they killed in battle and then collect all of the heads and scalps of their victims for trophies and then they would sew their scalps and skins together to make cloaks for themselves and quivers for their arrows. It's about as bad, it's about as debased as it gets and here is the Apostle Paul saying if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, there's no longer any distinction between Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free circumcised and uncircumcised and yes even the Scythians Paul <laughs> those are fighting words brother how can that possibly be he said well it's simple it's because Christ is all and in all and we are in him he is the head we're the body which means if you've been raised with Christ, you put on the new self. You now have a completely new identity. You're no longer who you used to be. You have a new purpose. You have a new name. You have a new home. You have a new family. You are now someone wholly different from the person you once were. Amen. 
So act like it. Paul says, act like it. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put off the old self and put on the new because you're not the man or woman you used to be. You're a new creation in Christ. He is the head. We are his body. The 19th century English scholar Jay Vaughn, he's one of my favorites, he said, Christ is the sufficiency and the satisfaction of life. Ask the years that are gone. Take counsel of the past. What is satisfaction? Where has desire rested? When has ambition had enough? It has pleased God to treasure up all that man really wants in one treasury, the Lord Jesus Christ. And accepting there no man since the foundation of this world ever found it. He fills all things. He must fill your hearts. You will date your peace, he says, your first true peace, to that day when you could say of Christ, he is all and in all to me. Okay, if you've been raised with Christ, you are a new creation, which means you should act like it by putting off the old self, dying to yourself and living in Christ. It's one of the very hardest things for us to do. It is the very hardest thing for me to do, right? It's not only the right thing to do, by the way. It's one of the keys to insulating ourselves from diversions. The diversions of false teaching and empty philosophies of this world by embracing our new identity, our true identity in Christ when we die to ourselves and we're raised with him. This is what, this is what Paul's trying to get across to these Colossian Christians. So let's keep reading. Verses 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father through him. So this is, sort of, uh, this is sort of the other side of the coin from the last section, right? If verses 5 through 11 tell us what not to do, then verses 12 through 17 describe what we should be doing. And, and what's interesting is that right in the middle of it, just after mentioning uh, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, right? The fruit of the Spirit that we talked about last week. And just before mentioning peace and thanksgiving and wisdom and worship. Right in the middle of all that, Paul says, above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And when he says that love binds everything together in perfect harmony, he's using the ancient Greek word sundesmos, which was used to refer uh, uh, to ligaments in a person's body that held everything together. So the love that we have for God and for each other as Christians is what holds this whole thing together, which means without love, it all falls apart. 
That's why Paul said, above all these, put on love, <clears throat> which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's why Peter said, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4.8. That's why Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It all depends on love. Matthew 22, 37 through 40, right? Paul said, faith, hope, and love, these three abide. But the greatest of these is love. Right? There are nine different types of fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Nine different types of spiritual fruit that should characterize the life of every believer, but the one that trumps them all the one that holds them all together is love. So Paul says, look, if you've been raised with Christ, then put on love. Because without it, we have no testimony to the world. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples. By what? If you have love for one another. John 13, 35. In fact, without love, all the other gifts of God expressed in our lives amount to nothing. Paul said, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Okay, the mystery cults in the first century at midday would march through the streets and bang gongs and cymbals. It was completely worthless. That's what Paul's comparing us to if we have all the spiritual gifts but have not love. Just noisy nothing. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, the works of Christ, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. All of our good works and all of our good intentions and all of our good ministries and all of our good churches and all of our good religion is nothing more than a heap of worthless diversions if we do not have love. Amen. Because love is the one fruit of the Spirit that drives us to produce all the others. Right? You're never going to genuinely express Joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control toward other people if you don't love them first. Amen. You will not because you cannot. You might be able to fake it for a while. But at the end of the day, you cannot lay down your life for other people if you don't love them. Amen. And get this idea of love being uh, the highest of all virtues has never been exclusive to Christian thought, by the way. In fact, we have, uh, we have ancient writings from throughout the early Greco-Roman world that attest to the fact that love was considered to be the one virtue that bound all others together. And of course, today... It isn't hard at all to find non-Christian authors and artists and songwriters and speakers and teachers and leaders of all kinds throughout our society who promote love as the greatest attainment we could ever realize in our lives and in our communities and in our culture. But honestly, what is love? 
without Christ. At best, it is a hollow imitation, an empty promise built on a foundation of human feelings. It is nothing more than a worthless diversion meant to make people feel better about themselves. You see, the the truth is you cannot have real love without a real God. The Apostle John tells us God is love. 1 John 4, 8, but then that also means that if you have indeed been raised with Christ, then you have absolutely, unequivocally, undeniably zero excuse for not loving other people. And I think it's telling that Paul says to us, above all these, fall into love. Now wait a minute, that's not what he said. He didn't say, above all these, look for love. He didn't say, above all these, pray that love comes your way. No. He says, above all these, more than anything else, put on love. Because loving others is a choice. It's not just something we do. It's who we are when we're in Christ. Because being in Christ is to be in real love itself. Once again, it all comes back to what we're focused on because if we're not focused on Jesus Christ the source and supply of all real love then we're merely chasing after worthless diversions diversions and we're calling it Christianity it's exactly what people were doing in the church at Colossae in Paul's day and I fear many are doing it today in the American church let's finish our story for today verse 18 to the end of the chapter Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done. There is no partiality. So again, Paul continues with this list of behaviors that should characterize the life of every Christian. And he transitions here from speaking to individuals to now addressing marriages and families and even workplace relationships. And then he says something about all of this effort that he's been describing really from verse 12 on that Christians should be engaged in, whether it's with other church members or family members or even those we we work with or for. He says, whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Right? In other words, if you've been raised with Christ, then work heartily for the Lord. In everything that you do. The, the problem with that, uh, for some of the Colossians in the church then, and I would say for many today, is that we're taught from the time we're children to work heartily for ourselves to make something of ourselves, to make a name for ourselves, to achieve status and wealth and reputation, to benefit ourselves. 
And the even bigger problem with that is, not only is that mindset, of course, antithetical to the gospel, but it has become a subversive undercurrent within the American church that is eroding our ability to stay focused on Jesus Christ because we've become so committed to focusing on ourselves instead. What we think we want, what we, what we think we need, what we think we deserve. And the result is, instead of offering people Jesus Christ and the convicting, transformative truth of his gospel, we're offering people ourselves and any number of culturally appealing religious diversions that we can come up with. Theologian and author Marva Don put it this way. She said, we have dumbed down the truth of God that reveals God's splendor and grace in the face of human depravity with false efforts to feel better about ourselves. To attract people from our culture, some Christian churches depend on glitz and spectacle and technological toys rather than on the strong substantive declaration of the word of God and its authoritative revelation for our lives. Sociologist Robert Wuthnow says the danger is that uh, worship becomes simply a performance, an exhibition that focuses on us instead of God. It may give people the false impression that the chief purpose of God is to glorify humans rather than vice versa. And finally, Bible scholar David Garland writes, for many, worship becomes the time when God is supposed to meet our needs rather than a time when we give glory to God. If it fails in that regard, then we do not have any use for it. The fact is, guys, that's precisely one of the most common reasons that people give when they leave the church today, because they're not getting what they want out of it. As if that was the purpose for our corporate gatherings to begin with, to get something from God. Listen, we get from God every time we wake up. We get from God every time we take another breath. We get from God every moment of every day that he pours out his infinite blessings on our lives simply by the fact that we continue to get to live on this good earth even though we don't deserve one single moment of it. Not to mention the jobs we have, the cars we drive, the houses we live in, the, the relationships we enjoy, the food that we eat, the entertainment we consume. Honestly, is there any end to the blessings that we get from God every day? And yet it's all that some Christians can do to muster up enough energy and interest to go to church once a week just to give something back to God, to worship Him with His people as we're commanded to do for just an hour or two. And yet even at that, if we don't feel like we're getting enough out of it, we quit going. Can you see how twisted that is? God, help us to understand why we were put here on this earth to work heartily for you, to glorify you in everything that we do because it's all about Jesus Christ and how we can serve him. Amen. It all comes back to what we're focused on. Jesus Christ or all the other good things, the diversions that our enemy constantly dangles in front of us. It's not, a hard, it's not a hard question to answer. Just look at what you spend the bulk of your time, your energy, your passion, your money on. Is it the pursuits of Christ 
or the pursuits of this world? What do you spend most of your time thinking about and dreaming about and planning for? Are they plans to serve Christ or plans to serve yourself? And look, it's really important that we actually answer that question because what you focus on in life will ultimately determine where you end up in life. What you fix your gaze upon, what you set your mind to, what you wrap your heart up in will set your course before you. For those who are yet dead in their sin, they have no choice but to focus on themselves. But for those who've been raised into new life in Christ, we've been given the freedom to seek the things that are above, to pursue a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And when we do that, when we brush away all of the diversions in our lives and focus instead on Jesus Christ alone, he pours back into us his love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Everything that we actually want in our lives, all of it, all of it is available to every one of us who have been raised with Christ. Let's pray.